the Agorist Nexus Podcast. I'm Brandon. I've got my great co-host, Doug, with me. How you doing, Doug? Excellent, man. How's it going? Hey, pretty good. Pretty good. So while the statists are arguing over check marks on pieces of paper, we're talking about real real production and, and real value today with Michael. And he does all kinds of cooking and baking and pretty much everything. So uh, how you doing, Mike? I'm doing pretty good. Thanks for having me on, guys. Yeah, thanks for coming for on. Sure, man. Thanks for being here. How do you make money baking cooking? Well, I got a, a couple couple ways that I do it here. So the first thing that I, I've started, I started uh, a couple of years ago, started a personal chef business. So it's um, in-home meal preparation for people too busy or too lazy to want to cook for themselves, basically. Uh, that has taken a bit of a downturn this year, as you might expect. <laughs> this was normally something you do like in people's homes. Yes. Yes. Okay. I, so that, that's one of the beauties of, of this, that particular business. So one of the reasons I'm not a caterer, because I do kind of, I can do anyway, a lot of the same things a caterer would do. But so under technical definitions, a caterer is selling a product subject to all kinds of idiotic rules, regulations, inspections, etc. Whereas a personal chef is selling a service subject to none of those. So it was a very easy decision at that point to do that versus trying to be a caterer. Um, <laughs> so, and, and that's kind of where I, I went with that. And um, yeah, like I said, I mean, it wasn't going super great because I, I was new and it's a fairly small town that I live in. I mean, it's like 50 some odd thousand people in the town itself. And then there's a couple of smaller communities nearby, but uh, needless to say, it's not a huge population. So it's, and I didn't have a large operating budget for advertising or anything like that. So trying to get word out is, was very slow going. So I didn't have a very large uh, regular client base yet, but uh, what little regular client base I had, COVID came along and shot that right in the fucking face. <laughs> so yeah, that does that. <laughs> yeah, it was, is pretty rough. Well, I mean, government. especially you mean government. <laughs> well, that too. Well, I mean, yeah. like one one of my clients, like legitimately government or not, you know, because I I do have to say a little credit where it's due. As much as I don't like to to give governments credit at all, the government of North Dakota, where I live, has been trying their very best. Well, maybe not their very best, but they've been doing a pretty good job, nonetheless, of being fairly hands-off with this and, and putting out, actually just putting out guidelines for the most part. Like, this is what we recommend you do. Do what you want. Which I don't generally Reasonable. have too much of a problem. Yeah, I don't generally have too much of a problem with that. You know, and so the, the one bigger client I had, um, they have regular contact with their, a mother slash mother-in-law, depending on which part of the couple you're talking about. And the mother-in-law is an 80-year-old diabetic, you know, constantly smokes, chronic emphysema, basically every kind of bad comorbidity you could ask for with the kind of infection that was going around. So they were like, yeah, we don't really want to kill her. So we're going to kind of cut off contact with most people 
voluntarily, like I said. So, I mean, it was like, eh, fair. Right. I, I can't blame you for taking the measures that you think are best to protect you and your family. So, okay. I don't like it, but fair. Ooh, this is one of the fortunate things about this. It sounds terrible about this, you know, disease or infection or whatever you want to call it, is that it really is age targeted. So, mm-hmm. you know, in a situation like that, it's like, yeah, you know, take the measures. Uh, yeah, so it's, exactly. You know, that's one good thing that's easy to, you know, old people don't go, don't go, you know, they're yeah. not out on the town as much as everybody else anyhow. So, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, but at any rate, then with that, so this was something I kind of started in parallel with the personal chef business is just more for my own, well, maybe not more, but about 50% for my own amusement and 50% as a way to potentially make some extra money. I started um, doing some woodworking stuff, you know, little things, some small decorations and and shit like that. Nothing huge, nothing crazy. And my mother is a uh, big time quilter has been for a long time. She's got a ton of them. Some of them she doesn't necessarily even want. So that kind of thing. So we were like, well, let's, let's start this little thing together where we're selling our crafts together. And so we thought, okay, the local farmer's market, it's still going to be running. They allow crafters to come in and sell things like that's, that's a good outlet to try and sell some of our things at, you know, no big deal. And I figured, especially with uh, not having the personal chef clients that I was having, I was like, okay, how can I get extra money out of some of these things. So I looked into cottage food industry laws and regulations up here in North Dakota, and they are pretty relaxed. So that enters in the next part of how I make money kind of independently as as a cook and so forth is uh, I was baking bread like a motherfucker (laughs) over this past summer (laughs) and selling it at the farmer's market. You guys, uh, your farmer's market stayed open all summer? Or did they close down yeah. at all because of, because of the COVID? Oh, that's uh, awesome. They opened a little bit late, but that was not even exclusively because of COVID. Like a little bit was because of COVID. A little bit was because the weather at the first part of the uh, season was a little weird. So produce was coming in a little bit slow. Um, so there, there, weren't, there wasn't produce ready to start selling at the farmer's market until early July, I think it was. Whereas normally it it would open up probably like middle of June ish. So you guys have a lot of um, veggies and like different actual farms at your farmer's market. And the reason I ask is because I run into so many quote unquote farmer's markets that are just craft festivals, (laughs) you know? Yeah. Um, I would say, so obviously we had a bunch of crafts there for sale, but I was also selling uh, the bread. And then I was, one of the other things I I started selling there was um, spice blends because I've been a chef for a very, very long time. So I've come up with some uh, spice blends for things. And I was jarring those and selling them up. So we obviously had some crafts, but we also had food products there. And I would say other than us, there was like three people at this market, three vendors that were, I would call crafts people of sorts, but even they're still very tangentially related to a farmer's market. Like one of them sold uh, like essential herbal oils and infusions and things like that. So that's still kind of farmer's market related to me. 
Um, oh, yeah. There was one that sold handmade soaps. There's one other one who I don't remember what they had, but... Oh, there was one guy that was selling uh, 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 rugs. Handmade rugs. So that was actually pretty cool. Oh, nice. But yeah, I mean, there is probably 30 vendors or something like that that signed up at this particular farmer's market. And so there was only like maybe four people that were crafters. Everybody else was like a farm of some form or another. There were people, vegetables of all kinds. There was at least one mushroom farmer or had they had mushrooms. I don't know if they were necessarily a mushroom farmer, but one or two people that their primary product was honey. But again, that's that's still a farmer's market product as far as I'm concerned. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you got to have at least one good local honey guy at a farmer's oh, market. Yeah. And uh, there's a lot of them up here, I got to say, because uh, this is just a fun piece of trivia. State where I live, North Dakota, is actually the number one honey producer in the U.S. Interesting. Yeah. You wouldn't think we, that um, with we uh, have a lot of aviaries stuff up there. But. Yeah, you wouldn't think it, but I mean, the thing of it is, is soybean, sunflower, and canola are three of the big crops up here, and they all need pollinators. Nice. So there's a shitload of honeybee keepers up here. And then the yeah, they button them up real good for the winter. Mm-hmm. Yep, but they overwinter up here too. Like that's the other funny thing is like they most of them overwinter up in North Dakota, and then mm-hmm. in like February or March, something like that, a lot of them start trucking their bees down to places like California and so forth. Um, it's another one of those kind of fun pieces of trivia. It's like without North Dakota beekeepers, there would be no California almonds. Because the, yeah, it's, the, um, the bees up here are such a huge part of the almond pollination and harvest down in California that without it, the, the California almond production would probably drop to minuscule amounts in comparison to what it is right now. And don't get me wrong, California produces a shitload of almonds. But uh, yeah, it would drop precipitously. Yeah, growing those monocrops, you know, it's just so unnatural. You actually have to ship yeah. in your pollinators, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, especially when it's when it's that many of them. Uh, our well, big one is uh, when, when we get oranges over the winter, They mm-hmm. we have a lot of apiaries here that ship all over the country too, um, you know, yeah. for pollination. But they bring them all here for the orange blossoms, for orange blossom honey. And oh, there's yeah, just absolutely. hives, just pallets of them just all over, yeah. scattered about the orange groves. Oh, I'm sure. I mean, there'd need to be. There's so damn many of them. Yeah, yeah. Um, have you ever tried raising bees? You do a little bit of, I don't know if you call it homesteading, but you have a garden and stuff, right? I have a garden, and uh, fingers crossed here soon, uh, we will actually be moving out of the town I'm currently into into a town with a burgeoning population of about 500 people. Ooh, and uh, and we'll be on a like three and a third acre plot where i will be turning it into a micro farm but yes uh i have not kept any bees yet because that was one of the reasons why i wanted to mention the uh, micro farm because that is absolutely in the cards whenever this happens i want bees and i want them real bad yeah they're pretty amazing i've heard yeah Yeah. (laughs) well it's it's one of those things too that 
Yeah, I, I'm a lot of the things that I look at, I look at from a self-sufficiency standpoint. And how can I kind of close in my production circles some or tighten them down or supply chain circles, or however you want to phrase it. Point of the matter being is, is how can I bring some of this stuff into where I'm less concerned with what other people decide to do? Because that's, that's another lesson this year I feel should have taught a lot of people is while attempting to be 100% self-sufficient is kind of foolhardy in the long term, mm-hmm. being a little more self-sufficient is a very good idea for people. And this year really drove that home to me. So yeah, it's bees are one of those things that they help a garden if you're going to keep one produce properly, well, maybe not necessarily properly, but abundantly. And then there's the, the added benefit of the honey just in general. And from honey, Man, there's so many other things you can do too. Um, Medicine, mead. Mm-hmm. Well, I've exactly. I've got several bottles of that very same that very thing, mead, um, that I made last year and bottled up, still sitting here in my basement. It's so simple. It's just like yeast and the honey, right? Yeast, honey, water. At, at well, mead, strictly speaking, is yeast, honey, water. Okay. If you add anything else to it, then it starts technically becoming different things. And that depends on what you add to it. Um, spices become a mephligan, I believe is what it's called. And if you add fruits to it, it becomes a melomel, melomel, something like that. I don't know how it's pronounced, but point of the matter being is it technically becomes a different drink. Technically. Almost nobody calls them that anymore because who fucking cares really? It's a, strawberry right. mead or it's a cinnamon it's mead. It's a flavored mead. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It, it's the only people who really care about those things are pretentious snooty assholes like me. <laughs> so. <laughs> well, you, um, you I really just, do. I can tell beer, the stuff you post. Saw... Oh yeah. I was going to, have you ever done mead, uh, Brandon? No, I just brew beer. I just, just brew beer. I do five gallon uh, all grain brew in a bag, so I don't have a lot of equipment. And mm-hmm. I need to do ten gallon, but I need a, a, like a wort chiller for that. And uh, yeah, or or at least a bigger like a like a cutout keg that I could brew my wort in. But and then I can, I guess I don't need a wort chiller. I can just put it in like an airtight container and let it cool down while it's on, and yeah. throw yeast in there the next day or something. But but yeah, you just need more equipment when you when you go ten gallon and. All grain's great. You know, you don't need that extract that, that sticks to the bottom and makes like a different flavor sometimes. And extract's also super expensive too. And I just get better results with, with all grain. I mean it's it's more time consuming when you when you brew it, but like an hour like an hour or two, two hours longer, but you just get better results. That that's my that's my rant. Uh how much oh. how much beer do you get from five gallons? Like how many bottles of beer is that? I get about fifty. Yeah. Oh shit! Yeah, that's not bad. Yep. Well, and, and just like um, so, the mead that I had done was a—I think it was actually like a four and a half gallon batch or something like that. 
but yeah, and that's like standard wine bottles. That's uh, I got like fifteen of them, I think, when I made it. Oh wow! So, does yeah, like, does mead taste really sweet when you drink it? It depends. Um, okay. The mead that I made was not because I did that on purpose. So a lot of the time, for some of these things, you'll uh, you'll sweeten it some again after the fermentation has stopped. And that, or you'll purposely stop the fermentation a little bit early to, to keep some of that sweetness there. But I don't like the really, really sweet means. I, I, yeah, I'm not a fan. So mine's actually pretty dry, to be honest. And like, there's, there's definitely still that honey taste, but without all of the honey sweetness, if that makes any sense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think so. Definitely. I made like a killer honey ale. It's probably one of the best beers I ever brewed. And it, it was awesome. But I, I did a, a, like a lot of different, instead of adding priming sugar to, to carbonate it, because I didn't have kegs to, to carbonate it for me. Right. So I just, um, I just uh, carbonated it in bottles. Right. But instead Which, of priming that's sugar. A, that's always a roulette spin too, when you're spinning yeah. that shit. Yeah, Which I got I got five grams too much sugar in it, and now my bottles are exploding. <laughs> you know, I, I kind of have it down to science, so I'm, I'm pretty good about that. But uh, uh, yeah, I've definitely seen that happen before. And instead of priming sugar, I used honey, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I even poured in honey into my wort when it was. Uh, when it was brewing, which was cool too. And, and it, it, uh, it turned out so good. It was like a, a darker, instead of like, a, well, I can't even think of the grains now. It's quite a while ago, but um, I used darker grains than, than what mm-hmm. the original recipe calls for. But, but yeah, it was, it was really good. Yeah. Honey is, man, there's a reason why for however many thousands of years, Honey was just as valuable, if not more so, in a lot of cases than freaking gold. Well, I, I mean, mean, what's the what are what are the rules? Like divisibility, okay, check. Um, yeah. It like never goes bad, right? Um, yeah. So you know, check. It's useful for something, so check. Mm-hmm. Um, what else am I missing here, Brandon? That makes something money. Um, the supply. Relative... Yeah, it's limited, and it takes effort and work. Mm-hmm. You, you, I guess, unit of account. I mean, you can just, uh, you know, um, a gallon. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You, well, you I mean, can go whatever. by pounds, I think, right? They go by pounds with honey. Yeah, typically. I think you're right. That is how but, they do but it. But I mean, what, whatever unit you choose to measure it in. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can do whatever ounces or you know. weight or volume or whatever. I got this gram, man. I got this gram of honey, bro. I got this yeah. gram. Pretty much. Yeah. I mean, it could be. A Get us back on that honey standard. Too- a good gram wouldn't be super valuable, but it would still be worth something. Yeah, yeah, yeah maybe for making change, you know. <laughs> it's, it's no crazier than a penny. Yeah, yeah no I think it's more valuable than uh, <laughs> than the U.S. dollar. But <laughs> well, absolutely, but especially fucking hemp honey. Have you guys heard too. about the big like like honey scandal, like the? like the foreign honey, like they're cutting it with like rice sugar or something. And I was watching something about it. um, And they, of course they were asking for regulation, you know, all the honey producers and it's like, just buy local. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Cause of course, but yeah, that, that is, um, they use like syrups or something like that to cut it. 
Well, it's just like, so still, still food related. I know at one point, I don't know if this is still going on because I'm, I haven't been in restaurants in years now, but at one point there was, uh, there was a concern about bootleg olive oil coming out of Italy, mm, Sicily yeah, specifically, because the Sicilian mobsters were fucking cutting the olive oil with bullshit like canola oil or something like that, and then just adding some color and some flavoring to it, and then selling it as extra virgin or virgin olive oil. Hey, like, those rules this, will buy this it. was a real <laughs> fucking thing years ago. I remember it. Because I remember oh, some people talking to me about that. I'm like, oh my God, you got to be fucking kidding me. You crazy goddamn <laughs> Sicilians. Oh so, man, yeah. I, uh, as a, as a Sicilian, I, um, I don't want to, I'm like, I'm from there or anything, but like, you know, yeah, I can't really talk oh, shit. <laughs> Cause I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's something that would happen. Well, and, Why and here, here's, here's a funny thing too. Like that is throughout history too. Like that, that is a normal thing in food related products. Like there are just, there are things that you imitate you bootleg, you know, it's because something or another gets a, 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 a notor a certain kind of notoriety or whatever for quality. Mm -hmm. So you try and pass yours off as them vanilla modern day. Here, here's another great example of just absurdly different, like dollar value pricings. So there's the two primary vanilla producing regions of the world are Tahiti and Madagascar. Madagascar vanilla is fucking insanely expensive. Like vanilla beans from Madagascar. Yeah, I'm trying to remember the last time I looked at it was years ago. I was looking at them for things and it was like $500 for a pound. Ooh. Yeah. I said how much a pound supposed to cost, but that seems expensive. It, it was because then the Tahitian vanilla was like a quarter of that. No, I mean it's it's diff vanilla is another one of those crops too. Like it's it's one of those funny things to me that it it gets the reputation. You know, if something's vanilla, it's ordinary and basic. Mm -hmm. But uh, vanilla is actually first off complicated to grow. And second, incredibly complex in flavoring. <laughs> it's so, it's like the best smell. It's <laughs> so good. Yeah. Yeah, and it but, um, grows grows from orchids that only really grow well in certain areas of the world, and they don't produce a whole shitload. Yeah, it's it's crazy. But anyway, it's an orchid. Wow. Um, mm -hmm. But. What dish were you looking for? Were they were looking for, the, or are you looking to cook with this really fancy vanilla? Oh, this was back when I was an executive chef at a restaurant, so this was for various just dessert uses. Okay, right on. I um, I've got a friend who's a professional chef, and yeah, like some of the stuff, like he like sends me like texts of he's so excited about like some you know truffle oil or something oh, that I've never heard of or seems mundane to me, but he's like so excited about it, you know? Yeah. Yep. So you actually did some professional, like, as far as like you were employed by somebody else, um, yes. some professional cooking in your past then. Oh yeah. Uh, 20 years of it. Oh, wow. 
did you ever go to school or anything for it? Or is it just something you picked up on the job? Um, yes, both of those. <laughs> I, okay. I went to uh, culinary school in um, the Twin Cities. It was the Le Cordon Bleu program that was there at one point. I don't think it's there anymore, but it was for like 20 years or something like that. This was also back in the height of the celebrity chef craze. Yeah, so this was the early 2000s that I went, and this was back in the days of Emeril and Bobby Flay being huge and Mario oh, Batali yeah, and all those guys. So this was way back in the day of all that insanity. So there were culinary schools on practically every fucking corner. But this one was associated with the Le Cordon Bleu in uh, Paris. Like this was, this was that organization. It was just a branch of it here in the United States. So, uh, yeah, it was, it was do you think great. That you got value from going to school or do you think that, um, do you think it was time and money well spent, uh, doing that yeah, for cooking or that's a tough one. I, I have to honestly say on the one hand, yes, because I do think that helped open some doors for me as my career went along. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, man, that was so much fucking money. Like I'm still paying oh, on it. Really? Oh yeah. Oh wow. So I, I guess I felt like culinary school might be a little less than like regular college. Oh no, no, it was very expensive. Um, yeah, I, I graduated in 2004. I am still paying on it. I believe the estimated payoff is going to be 2030. Oh jeez. Yeah, it was insane. It was very expensive, and so that's why I I kind of kind of yes and no. Um, I have some amazing memories from there. Um, I worked with some fantastic chefs there. I I, I mean, some of them were kind of you know, middle of the roadish, but some of them were very, very talented. Um, and like I said, it definitely opened some doors for me later on in my career, but especially at this point here, I'm looking back on it and going, man, could I have gotten here without that? And like, there's a little bit of me going, I think I maybe could have, and then I wouldn't have had all this fucking debt. But <laughs> but having that piece of paper, just like a regular degree, though, sometimes is what it takes, you know? Well, and like I said, it, it's not like it's, it's not like it's a fucking gender studies degree or some shit like that. Like this. Right. Yeah, you actually, a, you actually pick up stuff from. Yeah, this, this was a basically it was a top tier trade school. You know. It, it was a very well repudiated trade school is what it boils down to. And, you know, that can sometimes be worth it. I, I think. Well, yeah, I mean, I mean. Oh, go ahead. Oh, no, you go ahead. Okay. I, I was just going to say, I, I think uh, the real, well, maybe not the real, but one of the problems I had throughout my career when I was working for other people is just my general attitude i guess because i've always been kind of an independent individual so but i didn't really realize it when i was younger that working for other people wasn't such a great move for me i was like oh sure i can work for other people as i've grown older i've gone oh no i cannot work for other people that was a terrible mistake that was a (laughs) terrible mistake working for other people i am 
far to I want this my way to work for other people. <laughs> I, I totally get it. Um, <laughs> I'm a little bit of a control freak about uh, business as well, man. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I have a feeling it's probably a common strain amongst, um, you know, freedom lovers and anarchists. Yeah. And, you know, well, especially of the individualists. But, yeah, especially yeah. of the individualist strain like we are. Yeah, the, the more collectivist and, strain of anarchist, then eh, maybe not. But uh, yeah, the, the more individualist strains of them. Oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> so I've been trying to think of a way to phrase this that doesn't sound insulting. So bear with me to the end of the sentence. Um, yeah. <laughs> obviously, you are extremely talented um, mm -hmm. at what you do and you're very passionate about it. But one of the things that I kind of like about like cooking and this idea of doing like a, some sort of personal chef business or like you're doing with, um, you know, um, uh, cottage foods and whatnot is that it doesn't necessarily, there's not a lot of infrastructure involved or like necessarily mm -hmm. startup costs, just having a kitchen or one of the things I love about personal chefing is you're using somebody else's kitchen, but there's not like cooking is one of the things some people are just like good at in a lot of instances, you know, and again, not to mm -hmm. the hard work that it takes to, no, you know, the talent okay. that you know you have, but you don't really need much. To, it's one of those things that talent aside, anybody can do. So it's one of the reasons I kind of really like this idea of doing like a personal chef mm -hmm. business what what kind of tips or anything might you have uh, for somebody who might want to get into this and then also i guess maybe even somebody who doesn't want to get into like as a business but maybe just wants to start like we were saying being more self self-sufficient being able to cook for mm -hmm. themselves where would somebody might want to start learning how to do that um i know that's two big different questions there but yeah i was gonna say that, to that that's a very large question so this might take a couple minutes but... <laughs> That's not necessarily a bad thing. So, I mean, one of the very first things, obviously, is uh, I'm going to I'm going to approach this as learning for yourself. OK, because trying yeah, to do let's this, start. There. We'll, we'll start with point. that and then we can go to, OK, now you want to do this as a business thing, because that's yeah, yeah. two very closely related skill sets, but different. And we'll get into that. So the very first thing is figure out what you like, figure out what you don't like. Okay, that's pretty easy. Most people have a pretty good grasp of that already. Okay, and then where you can start with learning the skills, man, YouTube is full of it. And you can find anything from basic knife skill videos and instruction to advanced technique, like very advanced technique shit that I probably won't even do. And anywhere in between. And then just like the, the old joke goes, how do you get to... Carnegie Hall practice. You know, it's it's that you practice it, you practice it, you practice it, you practice it, and so I had a mantra when I was a, an actual chef, you know, the, an executive chef, and I had cooks working for me. My mantra in the restaurants was: do it right, do it clean, do it fast, and in that order. And then you take that to heart. So. That's when you, after you've figured out some of the things you want to do, some of the things you want to learn, you focus on getting it right. Don't worry about how fast you're doing it. Don't worry about how messy you are doing it at first. Don't worry about any of that. Make sure you get it right. Then start working on making less of a mess while you're doing it, doing it a little bit faster, all that kind of thing. Because I mean, Obviously, you don't want to sit there, take a real simple thing. I'm sure you've done this a few times yourself. Um, deboning a chicken. 
or any other bird, pheasant, duck, goose, whatever the hell it is. Okay. There's a great way to save money first off is instead of buying cut chicken at the grocery store, buy the whole chicken. They're almost always less expensive per pound. And, you know, with some practice, you can break those apart into the pieces that you want and away you go. Also, you can usually find chicken breasts that don't weigh like a pound a piece doing it that way. Those things are fucking mutants and I don't like them. But, uh, yeah, they get a weird texture once they get that yeah, big too. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's real. I, I'm, I'm not a fan. But, um, you know, like at this, one of the things my mother likes to, to say to me sometimes, she's like, I'm just not as good doing these as you are. I'm like, mom, I've done this professionally. I have literally broken apart thousands of birds. Of course, I'm better than you are. So, you know, and, and that's just what it is. You, you, get, you get good at it. You practice. You find out the knives that you need and the knives that you like. Um, I know, for example, working in a kitchen, I know what, I know what knives I like. I like a 10-inch chef's knife, French style. I'm not a big fan of the Santoku blades. Um, I, a paring knife, usually about three, three, a three-inch blade, three and a half, something like that. And then a bread knife, a like eight, six to eight inch fillet knife and a six to eight inch boning knife. And those are the only knives I pretty much ever use. Get good with those. Now you can, you can do anything with those knives. <laughs> Again, something that people laugh at me occasionally about is I almost always just use my chef's knife for practically everything. So one of the things I'll do is I'll have, you know, I'm getting ready to cut some tomatoes or something like that. I'll have my chef's knife out. I'll grab it by the tip of the blade, hold it almost like a pencil, cut out the core of the tomato, put the tomato down, and then go about slicing or dicing it however I'm doing it. And people laugh at me sometimes because because I do that. I'm holding this freaking chef's knife like a pencil practically. But those are techniques you learn how to do and you practice them, practice them carefully when you're using things like knives, because you obviously don't want to slice the crap out of your hands, but, uh, you know, you practice, 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 practice. Yeah. So, I mean, as far as on a personal level, that's pretty much all you need to do. Now, if it's something you want to do as a profession, that's where things start getting a lot more complicated because you're no longer just making things that you like, which is really easy to do. You need to make things that other people are going to like, and they may have different tastes than you. In fact, they probably are going to have different tastes than you. So that's when you need to start diversifying your knowledge, figuring out flavors that go well together you know and that's going to involve some weird experimentation sometimes uh one of my my favorite stories just on a professional on level it. i'm sorry just just throw cheese on it is, is my motto well uh, that <laughs> works more often than you might think <laughs> it is orange, juice, orange juice just just throw just throw cheese in the orange juice the, the orange juice might be a little, hmm, that's a 50-50 maybe. But just throw ice cream, yeah, just, just throw cheese on that thing. It'll work out just fine. 
<laughs> well, I mean, so one of my, my favorite stories to, uh, to tell people when, when I, I'm talking about experimenting with flavors. Okay. So one point years ago, I worked at a sports bar here in town. Okay. And, um, one of the things the owner wanted to do, yeah, I, sports bar and it was a wings place. Okay. It wasn't Buffalo wild wings. It's a, another national chain competitor called Buffalo wings and rings, but they franchise their stuff out too. So the owner, so they, they have some freedom to kind of do some things of their own. The owner wanted to bring in hot dogs because they weren't on the menu and he thought it went well with the thing. I agreed. Um, one of the things he wanted to do was have a couple of them designed to be deep fried. So in other words, wrapped up into a tortilla, dropped into the fryer and then served that way. Again, still a great idea. So one of the things I wanted to do just to kind of fuck with them a little bit, because I knew it was going to be great, but I knew they were going to freak out at the idea. So I took one of these hot dogs and it was like a hundred percent beef, like kosher beef, Frank, real good quality. Threw it into a tortilla with some blue cheese crumbles, wrapped it up and deep fried it. Okay. And that was it. It was just the, the Frank and the blue cheese crumbles. When I, when it got done frying, I took it out and I rolled it in cinnamon sugar. And I was like, here you go, guys, you need to try this. And there, everybody was just like, this sounds disgusting. What the fuck are you doing? I'm like, just, shut up and try it every single one of them was like this is really good what in the hell are you doing i was like see i told you you guys need to trust me also we should not try and sell this because i know all of the customers are going to react the exact same way you guys did and nobody's going to buy one but i just wanted Meet to prove your own. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so it's just like i just wanted to prove a point to you that's it You know, and that's that's one of those things. Oh, go ahead. I was just gonna say, I feel like I'm really bad at that. Like the no, like getting some like the weird combos and stuff. Like I feel like I feel like I need to take like a wine tasting course for somebody to tell me what I'm supposed to be picking out of things. You know, Um, like I know what I like or whatever, but right. You know, here's the thing: stuff up like that. With with some of that stuff is like telling you what you're supposed to be tasting. You may or may not taste it ever. Like. A palate is something that, and that's something else too that I would recommend just kind of in a general sense to a lot of people is like a palate, food palate, something that has to be developed. Like you need to try a bunch of wild and crazy things to see how they're going to taste. Some of them are going to be really good. Some of them are not. And you need to not be afraid of that. And, you know, and especially if you want to do it in some kind of business sense, like you need to try these things yourself and you also need i think to develop your palate and expand your taste because i mean if you're a person that's like i like hamburgers and i like chicken strips and i like french fries and that's about it um i'm here to tell you you're probably not going to have a lot of success as a personal chef because you're not going to know what the hell to do with any of the other things that people like to eat now, if you're somebody like me, who every time, you know, on Twitter or something like that, one of those stupid, you know, one point for everything that you haven't eaten on this list goes around and I'm like, one, zero. Ooh, this one, I've got two. There's two things on this list I haven't tried. <laughs> you know, stuff like that. Like, that's kind of where you need to be. You need to know 
what these things taste like because people are going to like some of this weird shit that maybe you do or don't. Doesn't necessarily mean you need to like it, but you need to know what it tastes like because once you learn in, in your head, it's like, okay, so it's got um, a certain kind of sharpness and there's this bitterness here and there's a little bit of a natural kind of peppery flavor. Like, okay, cool. I know what this tastes like. So I can know that it's going to be good with this because this is going to complement it or this is going to contrast it in a very pleasant way or things like that. You know, it's, it, it, it's a, it's a process. I will tell you that. Now, again, like I've been a professional cook in some form or another since I was what, 18. I'm 39 now. I've been doing this a long damn time. <laughs> You still enjoy it though. And that's, yeah. that's always something in itself. It's so easy to get burnt out on getting into something because you love it. And then ending up mm-hmm. hating it is so common. Yeah. Oh, it absolutely is. And for anybody that loves cooking and food, I encourage you to look at things more than just restaurants and bars. If you want to do something career oriented with it, there's a lot of things out there and I'm here to tell you as somebody who worked in restaurants and bars for most of that 21 years um, it takes a special kind of insane person to work in them because it is a lot of hours weekends are your busiest time so are holidays so good luck getting either of those things off pretty much ever again you're going to work until ungodly hours of the night probably regularly so say goodbye to your social life. Like, and it is fast paced. It is very fast paced. It is very high stress. Last I looked, um, professional chefs, I think were like number three on the list of like most stressful careers in the United States. And like number two or something similar to that for substance abuse. I mean, it is a brutal environment. I was, when you said number three, I was totally going to go. still more dangerous than the, probably still more dangerous than being a police officer too. Probably is. Dude, probably (laughs) probably not funny since it ended up being true, but I was going to go, oh yeah, number two for cocaine usage. And then you said number two for um, substance abuse. So (laughs) now I feel like a little bit of a dick, but it's kind of true. No, you shouldn't because it's a legitimate thing. (laughs) So another just fun story from my youth. Um, When I was finishing up my culinary school, one of the things we did was an internship type of deal with a restaurant someplace. So I I chose to do with one in uh, at a restaurant there in Minneapolis. And uh, it was, I don't know, like a Friday or Saturday night. I was asking the garmanger guy, who I was working next to, I was like, so I don't even remember his name now, but I was like, so what are you going to be doing tonight? Like, well, Saturday. So I think I'm going to go get some alcohol and I'm going to go get some Coke and I'm going to go get some women. And I'm going to have a good time. <laughs> I was like, all right, then. <laughs> Sounds like fun. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's a it, that that is that is a big uh, big thing, especially in the higher end restaurant uh, industry. I uh, I have I have friends who struggle with that uh, for sure. Being oh, chefs yeah. had problems continuing to do the work, you know, because you're just around it. You know, mm-hmm. they're it's very fast paced work. I mean, I used to work mm-hmm. in restaurants when I was younger and like nothing fancy, you know. Um, mm-hmm. But like, I mean, in a sense, I enjoyed it, but I don't want to go work in a restaurant. So I, I really like where you're going with that. Like, find a find another way to do food that isn't yeah. just a restaurant. I mean, especially now, I mean, opening a restaurant, you know, in the days of COVID well, is probably the worst thing you could Christ. even think of doing. <laughs> well, and so, I mean, opening a business in general, as a lot of people know, is it's a very risky proposition. Like businesses have a very high failure rate in the first year. Restaurants are oh, yeah. above and beyond that. Um Last I remember seeing restaurants have like a 33% success rate in the first year. And then of those that succeed in their first year that remain open after one year, something like only 20% of those are still open after five. Like they have a very, very high failure rate because you have a very volatile product that is kind of expensive in some cases. Oh yeah. And usually like razor thin profit margins, a really good restaurant profit margin, like actual profit is 3%. That's really good. Typically it's right around one. So they are not super profitable. They're very high stress and yeah, they're just, they're a bitch. They're a bitch and a half, man. Bars Everybody are, I know who owned one has heart attacks. <laughs> yeah. It's super stressful. Yeah. It's super stressful. Like, so I, there's I just like, no way. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I like to think I'm a pretty laid back person. And, and in general, I, I think that's an accurate opinion of myself. Um, in restaurants, especially when I was the executive chef, man, I was constantly on edge. Because there's a fucking ton of pressure so what might you su- suggest people look into then you know let's say aside from like personal chefing um if they wanted to get into something food related but wanted to avoid the uh the restaurant you world know, the hustle and bustle of the restaurant industry yeah that is a very understandable thing well i mean that's going to depend a little bit on on where your talents lie so for example are you a bit better as a cook or as a baker okay and if you're a baker are you better as a like bread and that kind of thing baker? Or are you really good with the cakes and the decorating and all that kind of thing? Cause I mean, if you're, if you're good, if you're a good cake decorator, especially um, that is pretty much constantly in demand because it is a very difficult skill to get real good at. And the, benefit to something like that is especially if you're trying to do it kind of without a lot of overhead type of thing or kind of on the side to where the government might not notice as much um most of the time i i think in most states in in the u.s anyway um, cakes and cake decorating and all that kind of stuff is going to fall under 
uh, cottage food laws to where you can do it without any real issue. And so for people who are unaware of what cottage food laws and or cottage industry laws generally in specific, but the cottage food is a, a different subcategory that this it's just sort of like what the name might imply. It's done out of your cottage. It's done out of your home. Um, there's, there's usually minimal to no regulations practically. Well, no, I wouldn't say no, but there's usually very minimal re regulations on what you can and can't do. Uh, there's almost zero oversight, basically. Uh, I know for me, for example, up in North Dakota, the only time a health inspector will ever set foot in my home to inspect it under the cottage food laws is if there is a credible claim of illness from one of my products. And that's the only time they will ever set foot in to take a look at anything. So, you know, I, I have basically no oversight from the local health department. Yeah, and, uh, well, foodborne illness is extremely hard to prove in it the is. first place. Well, and that's why they say a credible um, claim, not, not proven uh, claim. Yeah, like my stomach hurt right after I ate your food. And it's like, well, uh, most foodborne illness takes like 12 to 15 hours. Exactly. Well, I, I just ate your bread and now I'm sick to my stomach. Okay, cool. That's not my bread then. Yeah, that was what you ate like 12 hours ago. Yesterday. Right? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So that, that's when, and, and I do have to say once again, the health departments up here are generally not too terrible, much like a lot of the other government. I mean, they still suck, but it's, so you wouldn't want to do it in California, in other words. <laughs> yeah, well, and I, I obviously don't know what the the laws are like down there because I don't probably probably horrible. <laughs> I would imagine. I, I remember seeing something a couple of years ago where they actually had passed some laws to ease up the restrictions down there, which I thought was really wonderful. Because I mean, hell, anything that gives people more options is is a wonderful thing. But yeah, so I mean. Uh, uh, cottage food laws, though, we got a little off topic there. And cottage food laws are, are a great place to start looking if you've got an interest in that. Okay. What can I make? What can I sell? That kind of thing. Um, and then look and see where your skills are. And a lot of it is going to be, a lot of it's going to be kind of like catering adjacent slash personal chef adjacent type of things. You know, like a friend of a friend is ha knows that you're a good cook and they ask you to come cook for a little uh, retirement party or a uh, small wedding reception they're having. You know, they're not having anything big. They don't need anything fancy. They just want a little food for them and 15 of their friends. Can you do something for them? Yeah, sure. You know, whatever. Yeah, a lot of it's going to be things like that if you want to get into food. But, I mean, then you, you also have the, you have the miracle that is the 21st century and the Internet. So there's all sorts of other things you can, well, maybe not all sorts of other things, but there are other things you can do, too. You can start a YouTube cooking channel. I mean, it's not going to make you rich, probably, because there's a bunch of them out there. But you can still do it. Nothing's gonna stop you. Show maybe people like how to a, do it. 
What about like a food truck? I mean, I don't know the regulations for that either, but I mean, if they never know where you're at, I mean, how are they gonna? <laughs> I mean, you you could you could do a gorilla food truck. Um, I don't know that I would recommend something like that in general. Um, but the the benefit there is in a lot of places, though they're starting, I think, to crack down on this some more because. You know, the government's not getting their cut, basically. But in a lot of places, uh, food truck regulations tend to be a bit more light than actual restaurants. And um, the the overhead, I do have to say, the overhead is considerably less. Um, obviously, I can't speak to other places than here for a lot of this because I haven't looked and I've had no reason to look, basically. But I know up here, you can usually buy a halfway decent food truck set up for you know, like $30,000 or so. So that's the truck that's going to be some of the cooking equipment, et cetera, et cetera. So that's not, I mean, it's not nothing, obviously, but it's certainly no hundred plus thousand dollars for setting up a restaurant. And then yeah, it's not really unattainable. Yeah, yeah, it's it's very obtainable, even if you don't have a lot of money to start with. So, and then, like I said, a lot of the time the regulations are a little bit lighter handed, so you can not what not have to worry cool quite about it. You're not you're not tethered to like a spot, like you know, like real estate and businesses mm-hmm. and restaurants is like location, 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 right? But like with a food truck, like you know, you can you can location, roll out location, to location, or, yeah. Location yeah, exactly. Thing, <laughs> it's wherever it needs to be. <laughs> your location is very fluid at that point. Yeah. Now, um, like around here, I know a, a real, real easy win, and this is in most places. You know, as you go into a bar, especially if you're a regular customer, man, at, at one of the bars, and you you've got a food truck, you go in, talk to the owner, talk to a manager, be like, "Hey, can I set up in that corner in your parking lot with my food truck?" Most of the time, those you yeah, like, hit it up at like yeah. 11 p.m. <laughs> yeah, well, anytime, especially if it's a busy one. Like a lot of those bar owners, man, they'll be like, yes, because what will happen then is my customers will get hungry. And instead of leaving, they'll just go outside for 10 minutes. They'll get a sandwich or a taco or a burrito or whatever the fuck it is that you're selling. And then they'll come back in and they'll continue to drink. So, yes, please go ahead and set up over there because. This will be huge for my customers, and I will continue to make money off of them this way. So I mean, yeah, I mean, if they're eating, they're they're drinking more too. So mm-hmm. uh, you're selling more beers at that point. And you know, like, obviously, this is going to be dependent on the bar that you're asking. You know, if you're going to a sports bar or something like that, a wing place, they've got their own food, so they'll be like, "No, get the fuck out of here. We don't want you taking right. our customers." Yeah. But you know, just like a regular bar, like. I know up here, there's plenty of times I've been with people going out and having a few drinks or something like that. And they're like, somebody's like, man, I'm getting kind of hungry. Let's go to whatever diner or restaurant, get something to eat. That's and so me. We leave. I'm that guy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which I'm, I've been that guy before too. Cause there's times where it's like, man, I haven't eaten. I'm starving. You know, let's, you try let's to go. drink and you're like, yeah. this night's going to end poorly if I don't get food yeah. in me. <laughs> yeah, let's let's go. You know, and if you've got the option 
right outside the door practically that serves decent food. It's like, fuck, let's just go outside real quick. You want to have a cigarette anyway. So let's go outside. You have your cigarette. I'm going to get a burrito and then we'll come back in and keep drinking. Because probably like most, most like bars that aren't like, you know, restaurants too, you know, that try to do some small, easy food option, like, you know, like those easy pizzas or, or something like they're not making any money off of that food, but they're probably doing it to keep people drinking. You know, it's probably the whole thing. And that is exactly why. I mean, in some cases they're doing it. Like I know up here, uh, I think they've changed this recently, which is good because it was a reduction in stupid laws. But I know up in my town, at one point, bars could not even be open on a Sunday unless they also served food. And it had to meet certain qualifications to, to be food. You know, and so that's why a lot of those bars had those pizzas and shit, because it's like, this is one of those things. You know, we've got these, we've got a couple other things, and bam, we've got the necessary qualifications. We can be open on Sunday. You know, who cares if anybody orders them? And if right. they do, great. But if they don't, whatever, we can be open for the people that want to come in and drink. So like it's said, so funny when they make laws that are just like yeah. that easy to just get around up. Or you know, <laughs> like it's like, what's the point, yeah. dude? <laughs> yeah. There there isn't one. It's well, I mean, and some of that stuff, especially up here, like it's holdovers from prohibition and uh and shit like that, which that's a whole nother shit show, but you know, that's where some of that came from. And, and especially up here, like being as close to the border as we are, like bootlegging was a very big thing up here back during Prohibition. Yeah, yeah, that's probably true. Oh, yeah, it was. <laughs> there was at one point in my town specifically, there was an awful lot of federal agents because of bootlegging. Nice. I, uh, I, I love, I love like, um, like the history, like all that, like all like prohibition and stuff mm-hmm. and like, uh, like, like mafia stuff. Like I, I just love like the history, all that. Uh, yeah. it's, uh, it's so cool to me. So anything you yeah, have the, the smuggling or yeah, bootlegging. Oh, I just, I, I, I love it. I read tons of books about that kind of stuff. Uh, yep. There's a, there's actually a lot of, uh, my, my girls from Milwaukee and mm-hmm. there's a, they had a lot of really weird like alcohol laws too. Like bars could be open to like 3am, but you couldn't buy alcohol at a store past nine, which is like, yeah. Oh, you can't go home and drink, you know, but you can be out and about. Um, and just, yeah. yeah, just a bunch of strange alcohol laws like that too. Minnesota was like that at one point too. Cause like I said, I went to culinary school there and it was really weird to me because coming over from North Dakota, just the next day over. Like at the time our liquor laws were bars closed at 1am and so did the liquor stores. Okay, fair enough. Fine. That's how it worked. I get over there and it's like, okay, bars close at two. Awesome. Liquor stores close at nine. What? It seems so backwards. Yeah. Yeah, you'd think if anything, they'd do it the other way around. But no, supposedly the rationale was uh, the liquor stores closed early because that way when you're having a house party or whatever, the people would do that last beer run before the liquor stores close early in the night before they're super hammered to cut down on drinking and driving. Which hmm, I can apply to a handful of situations. Yeah, I was gonna say, like, I can kind of see that rationale, but that's real fucking dumb. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, it's pretty silly. I thought I heard like in New Orleans or something, like you could drink and drive as long as you had a straw because then you weren't like taking your eyes off the road to put the glass in front of your face. But I don't know if that was bullshit or not. <laughs> I, I feel like that's probably bullshit, but that would be amazing if it was true. I know. Like, I'm, well, be, I'm like, well, shit, if that's all it takes. <laughs> you can be as fucked up as you want, but you have to drink through a straw. Yeah. Done and done. Oh, shit. I'll drink oh, my man, shit through uh, a crazy straw if you, if you need me to at that point. Whatever. Oh, that keeps you from getting too drunk. It takes it that much longer to get to your face. Something. Who fucking? Uh, that, I guess. Yeah. That would, be, <laughs> that would be real, real funny if that was true. I strongly suspect it is not, though. Well, like when I was there, and this was a long time ago, they had like drive-through daiquiri places. So you could, they could Amazing. serve you. It was like a daiquiri in a cup with a straw through a drive-through window, and there was Amazing. some legal loophole where that was legal there. And it was just strange. Uh, maybe I had something to do with tied into it, but uh, but yeah, man, I, I do remember they had a they, like, drive-in daiquiri places. That is real weird. Yeah, yeah, it's a weird town, but you know, yeah, sounds I'm not like complaining. <laughs> so, sounds like uh, you. Uh, you got anything else, Brandon? No, I'm just a big listener myself. I just like to listen. But, but yeah, it's it's been a fun episode. I I've really enjoyed, especially all the getting around the bullshit red tape and mm-hmm. and stuff. I guess I guess I do have one question. What what have you noticed with COVID? I mean, have they added more reg? I guess they've added more regulations. Like you've got to wear a mask, and I mean, depending on the state, right? But yeah, you know, what have you seen on 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 that front? As far as things, I think that are going to stick around. Uh, generally speaking, that's probably still going to depend on state and locality. But I wouldn't say a whole hell of a lot. I mean, most of it is the stupid shit that people make fun of all the time online. Like, you know, you have to wear a mask when you walk into a restaurant, but then as soon as you sit down at the table, you can take it off because who fucking knows why, but, 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 you know, things like that, you know, there, there's some dumb things like that, but that's really about it. You know, and like, I know locally they have capacity restrictions that fluctuate that, or that have been fluctuating a little bit. They've been uh, tightening back down here recently because, you know, we've gone from number of deaths being the primary concern to the number of people actually testing positive for this thing. And of course, with much more widespread testing, you're going to find more positive results. So yeah. the, the number of cases has been climbing drastically recently so we need to tighten down on capacity restrictions and so forth again and you know stupid crap like that but that's really about it that i that i've seen in the the restaurant bar hospitality industry is basically masks and capacity restrictions but that's pretty much universal to everything yeah yeah well well, it feels like we're probably gonna have to wear masks forever right but um well some people i uh yeah. <laughs> you know, I and, and here's the funny thing too, and I know this has been a very contentious issue with a lot of people in our circles, you know, the masks versus the no masks and all this other shit. On uh, and of course, on the one hand, I absolutely loathe the mandate because fuck you, you know, is basically what it boils down to. Yeah, I mean, you don't want to get your customers 
sick because yeah. they won't come back. I mean, Absolutely. you know, it's pretty. Absolutely. You know, and much like that, that one client of mine, you know, with the older mother-in-law who's not in the best of health. And they were like, yeah, no, we're just kind of cutting off contact with pretty much everybody right now because we don't want to risk her getting sick. It's like, if you're doing it on of your own volition, I'm, I could not care less. Could not care less. I, my only issue with the masks are the mandates. But, and this is something that has been mentioned by several people before, and I'm going to, I, I feel it bears repeating because there's an awful lot of people that are still just, they've got the bit in their teeth of the mandate and they can't see anything else. With masks gaining widespread acceptance, you gain the ability to start obfuscating who you are in a public place without drawing attention. Because if it's normal for people to be walking around in face masks and shit on their heads and all this other crap, you can obscure your identity pretty easily. Yeah, that is one thing that I, that I do like about, about it. There have been times where I'm like, Man, I don't even want to be seen right now. So those are the times that I do yeah. that I will will put on a mask and Yeah. And people don't even on. look twice anymore. Yeah. They're just like, okay, whatever. You don't have to drive the next town to pick up your burner phones anymore. It's nice. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and that's just it. It's like and even the people who are like, Well, you carry around a tracking device in your pocket all the time. Yeah, I can put down a tracking device. My face is kind of attached to me pretty much always. So if it becomes acceptable in the public to constantly be walking around with a mask on, awesome. You can obscure who you are whenever the hell you want. Well, and then, of course, you get the screams of, well, they'll just double down on gait analysis. Change how you walk. It's pretty easy. <laughs> just yeah. step Put differently. Put a pebble in your right shoe. <laughs> mm -hmm. Exactly. There, you know? Yeah, um, it's like there's they're make in in a way it's being made easier for you to be a fucking ghost in public and that is a good thing and it is something i think people do need to be a little more conscientious of yes the mandates are still horrible i'm not going to disagree with that because it's still people telling you what you can and cannot wear and go get fucked however to the normies who don't think beyond anything. That's just meaning this is becoming commonplace and socially acceptable. Cool. That's a good thing. I guess it's nice to have the option. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cause I mean, prior to all this insanity, okay. Unless you were Asian, like apparently, like obviously apparently Asian, like Eastern Asian, specifically Chinese, Japanese, Korean, etc. If you were wearing a mask someplace in public during flu season or any other time, you got a lot of real weird looks. Now, people don't even look twice. Yeah, now you get the weird looks when you're not wearing the mask. Depending <laughs> on where you are. Angry glances. Yeah. <laughs> up here, up here, people are just uncaring pretty much either way. You're wearing a mask? Okay, cool. You're not wearing a mask? Okay, cool. But up here, even still, before all this, if you were wearing a mask, especially one of the homemade ones, like if you were wearing a medical mask, like an actual medical mask for some reason, people didn't generally look at that too weird. But 
when at the homemade mess, you would you would draw eyes up here prior to all this shit. Now <sighs> nobody looks twice. Yeah, before they just think you're doing a um handmaid's tale cosplay or something, you know? Yeah. <laughs> oh oh my god. <laughs> can can I can I take a few moments of your podcast to rant about something? Sure. Absolutely nothing to do with anything we've talked about, but Dag just saying that just I got I got a little triggered. Can we can <laughs> people read some different goddamn books? For fuck's sake, man. It is all either handmaid's tale, not so much Harry Potter anymore, because JK Rowling is apparently a transphobe or some stupid R shit, even though she isn't, but whatever. But it, prior to prior to all that, it was either Harry fucking Potter or Handmaid's Tale, and now they're also getting into all the Marvel shit. And it's just like you people need to consume some other fucking media because not everything is comparable to this shit. Read a different book, you fucking idiots. <laughs> Right. I'd give people credit if they were reading the Handmaid's Tale book. I assume people just watch the show. I mean, some of both, but <laughs> regardless, like consume some different media, make some comparisons to almost literally anything else. I, I don't even care at this point. Just something different. It can be a bad comparison. Well, this is like that scene in the Wheel of Time. Okay, it isn't, but thank you for having read something else. <laughs> i uh i read 1984 and animal farm recently because i never read them before and like yeah everybody's read them but i was like oh, it's time this year is definitely the time yeah yeah it definitely yeah. is i don't uh, i don't do much fiction but since you're since you're ranting about people's poor choice in fiction why don't you um throw out some of your recommendations uh for what just in general yeah, I mean, fiction in particular, I'd love to hear, but if you got any any books that you think everybody should well, read, go for it. So, I mean, it's just because I enjoy the series a whole shitload. Like, there's there's no cultural significance, really, or anything like that. But uh, the author, Jim Butcher, has written some fantastic books. Uh, one of them is called The Dresden Files. It is a, an urban fantasy series where the main character is a wizard and also a private eye. Fantastic. It is currently like 16 books long, so it's, it's a lengthy series, but it's very good. He also wrote uh, a series called The Codex Alera. That, was fini that is finished up. It was only six books long, so I do recommend it. And it is uh, Pokemon meets Lost Roman Legion. So it's, this is also fantasy, obviously, in case you couldn't tell. <laughs> so those are fantastic. Uh, Patrick Rothfuss as well has written a, there are two books in the series that are supposed to be three. I don't know if he'll ever get the third book done because holy shit, that guy does not know how to keep deadlines. It is called the King Killer Chronicle. The first two books are the name of the wind and the wise man's fear. It is probably some of the best fantasy I have ever read. It is phenomenal. And if he does not finish the third book in this series, it will be incredibly frustrating to not get the final bit of the story that he set up in the first two books. 
But in spite of that, I still recommend them. They're very, very good. <laughs> I hate it when that happens. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. The show called Carnival, that, like the first two seasons were like great. They stopped making it. And I was like, no. Yeah, he, he's just real, real bad about keeping his deadlines. And he's also a perfectionist, which makes it worse. And he's, he himself, I am not a fan of Patrick Rothfuss, the man. Some people might know his name. He was on, he, I don't know, one of the D&D podcasts or something like that with some moderately famous people he's on periodically. I think it might be the Penny Arcade one. I don't remember. But he's on one of those. And, you know, he's hilarious in a lot of ways, but he is generally kind of a cunt. Unless you're one of his friends. Like to the point where he angrily lashes out at fans if they have the fucking gall to just like politely ask, no less, if there are any updates on the third book in the King Killer Chronicle. You know, the thing that made him actually famous. Mm-hmm. That asking if there are any updates. Uh, by the way, he finished the second book like 10 years ago. So he's had like 10 years to write this book. It is a three book series. He has said it from the day one. It is three books long. <laughs> so, so, yeah. He, so, and he some gets, of us want to get to it before we die, right? Yeah. But I want to get to it before he dies. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> At this fucking rate. Oh, shit. Yeah, finish it up, man. At this fucking rate, he may not fucking finish it before he croaks. <laughs> I mean, he's not a particularly old man. He's only like 50 or something like that. You know, I mean, he's not a spring chicken, but he's not old either. But at this rate, fuck's sake, man. He may not get it written. It is three books long. Finish that shit up, man. Uh, hell yeah. Uh, um, all right, man. Well, um, I really appreciate you coming on, dude. Um, this absolutely. is a... Uh, this is great. Why don't you let people know where they can find you? Um, we're currently doing a bunch of baked goods and stuff. Are any of them for sale? Are you shipping any products? Go ahead and plug what you got, dude. So I am not shipping the baked goods yet other than to some people who requested them because I ran a GoFundMe here lately to uh, to raise money to buy a bigger mixer because the little four and a half quart KitchenAid I've been using just ain't cutting it anymore. <laughs> so, uh, I also promised, yeah, I promised some people baked goods if they wanted it in return for donations. And some people have said, yes, please. I would like that. So other than those, I'm not shipping them yet. I'm probably going to, once I figure out how to do it, because the biggest problem I'm running in, yeah, is, is getting them there while they're not, molded or something like that because i mean it's it's homemade baked goods man i'm not using a ton of preservatives or shit like that in them like my my sourdough bread consists of flour water salt and butter and that is it it is four ingredients (laughs) so um yeah so i i just need to figure out how i want to do this to where the quality isn't garbage and they make it to whoever wants them. Um, I am, however, they are not currently up there. 
Uh, the spice mixes that I mentioned earlier, I will have those. And I also have, will have um, some homemade jams and the like for sale up on Etsy. Which Etsy, backtracking in our conversation a little bit, that is another good way for people interested in trying to make some money off of some of these things to try and sell their product. Etsy is a pretty, pretty solid platform. They take a very minimal finder's fee, basically, for when you sell things. And yeah, pretty much as long okay, as- I have a question. Yeah. So so on, on, that, on that note, um, uh-huh. so you, you have, or at least you used to have a website um, where you sold like some products, t-shirts and stuff? Yes, I still have that website what? now. You you do okay. Yeah. So so here's my question, and this is <laughs> totally personal here. Um, but like, because I'm debating whether I should sell stuff on Etsy or do like a Shopify on a website. But the Shopify mm-hmm. is like thirty dollars a month just to have, you mm-hmm. know. So do, so do, would you recommend that until you maybe until you get big enough that Etsy is the way to go? Like, why I... are you doing Etsy versus selling this on your website? Cost, plain and simple. So Etsy okay. charges. There is no monthly fee for it. Okay. You just have your store. Um, they charge 20 cents, like 20 or 30 cents. I don't remember which per I item. To, yeah. Might've been that. I, I just don't remember, but it's 20 or 30 cents yeah. to list an item and it's good for three or four months. I don't remember which, and then it's another 20, 30 cents, whatever the hell it is to renew the, the listing. Okay. And then they take, I want to say it's like 5% when it sells of whatever it sells for as basically a payment processing fee, which if you do any kind of credit card payment processing or anything like that, you're going to be paying fees like that anyway. Yeah. So it's a pretty comparable payment processing fee, maybe a little bit bigger, a little bit higher than some, but not substantial, not enough to where I went, well, that's fucking unacceptable. Yeah, it's just a little bit higher. And then there's that really small flat fee to list the item. And that's that's it. it. So the cost is minimal until you sell something. And the thing of it is, is they take whatever the, the percentage is off the top of the sale. So you don't actually ever even see that money and have to pay it to them. They just don't give it to you. So really the only thing you're paying is the listing fee, which is next to nothing. Yeah. So once you get that and your get your shipping figured out, you know, that's the other, that's the other tricky thing, but, um, well, and and otherwise it's it's a really great. And here's the thing. Etsy takes care of a lot of that for you too. Yeah. They do help out with that a lot. They do make Mm -hmm. it a little easier. That was my big thing was figuring out the shipping, but they really made it like, it's very, very dimensions. Here's what it costs. And I think they even have a deal with like UPS or something where they get a little bit uh, of rate. Postal service. Yep. Yeah. You can, you it's can buy your shipping right. labels directly from Etsy and you get a little bit of a better deal than you would if you took it down to the post office. It's not substantial, but I mean, money saved is money saved. Cents counts. Yeah. Like I was selling dog treats on there and like the shipping alone was like, you know, eight bucks. And it's like, 
you know, I sell these things for, you know, $2 a piece at the farmer's market here. I'm lucky to get a dollar a piece for them after shipping, you know, mm-hmm. so shipping is a big chunk. So any little bit helps yeah. for sure. Um, what's your Absolutely. shop's name? So the shop is uh, Regis Barn Craftworks. I'll spell it all out for you. Thank you. <laughs> it's R-E-G-I-S-B-A-R-N Craftworks, just like you think it's spelled, C-R-A-F-T. W-O-R-K-S. Right, cool. And so that's that. And that has, uh, it's kind of bare right now because I need to refill it. But um, so that'll have my spice mixes. It'll have jams. That'll have any other food items that I'm looking to sell. That also will have um, the things my mother makes. So there's going to be some quilted and sewn things. Um, and then it will also have my woodworking crafts on there. I don't expect necessarily people to buy those very often because they're a, a little bit expensive and B the shipping is very expensive because wood is heavy. <laughs> yeah. But you know, nonetheless, they'll be there if somebody's interested. Yeah. Put them up. Yeah, absolutely. And then, uh, as you mentioned a few moments ago, I do still have a website. And I really, really, really need to get better about putting things on. I am so fucking bad with this, but there it is anyway. Uh, and that is thestatelesscook.com, spelled just like you would expect it to be. And I write blog posts there occasionally. Uh, there are should be links to my YouTube channel where I also am real terrible about putting videos up here lately and that's where i am doing some cooking videos and the like uh you can find that at youtube youtube and library or libre or however the hell that's supposed to be pronounced the lrbry one the one where the deterrence dispensed guys are doing all their stuff oh yeah it's great um so I have channels on both of those, and that is also Stateless Cook. You should be able to find Excellent. them in just a regular search there. And then last, but certainly not least, because this is where I spend far, far too much of my time, that's Twitter. The good old, the website, as the Fagcast boys would call it. Um, Twitter.com. And I am at Barbary, B-A-R-B-A-R-Y of. OF, all one word. Yeah, and if you guys want to see an epic uh, mustache configuration and kilt, uh, yes, <laughs> kilt donning. You, you'll know it's me when you see <laughs> the picture of the crazy shirtless guy standing posed with a walking staff with burned Nordic runes in it with a crazy mustache and a kilt. Like an early 1900s weightlifter or something. Yeah. <laughs> that mustache, yeah. I love it. <laughs> yeah, straight up like 1900s strongman. <laughs> yeah. I don't know yeah, what I'm like, going. I think I have to follow this one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Well, dude, thank you so much for coming on, Michael. This was great. Um, and uh, Absolutely. Uh, I still had like 20 questions on my thing here, so we, we could have kept going for hours, but we're, uh, we're well, not doing one of those – mcdonald's review episodes here so we're not gonna <laughs> we're not gonna do that <laughs> yeah that was a long one <laughs> yeah it was something for sure and, um, well and, you, uh, you know if you if you guys ever want to have me back on i'm more than happy to come back too 
Yeah, yeah, for sure. You know, I was thinking as we were doing this, we got to do some sort of good, just like way to get around food law, like specific episode. Cause I, I, that, that's my specialty right there. Like I love that stuff. So yeah. um, we, uh, we, we may have to talk to you about doing something like that in the future. Sure. You, uh, you got a phone or anything? Labeled, out all, uh, labeled all dog treats or something or? <laughs> that's my go-to. Yes. I have, I have the pet food license, I mean, $40. Yeah, a year. bro. Can you ship me those dog treats, dog? <laughs> I mean, so, oh, so, so another, another, some of those quick, dog treats, bro. <laughs> another quick and fun story about some of shipping some of these things and calling it other shit to get it past uh, your, your master's type of horse crap, just briefly. So my sister did a, a year of university over in Belgium or France, one of the two, I can't remember which. <clears throat> and uh, so, she sent some brandy or cognac specifically. I don't remember which to my dad at the time. This was years and years ago, of course. Um, but she sent some of it to my father and she labeled it to customs as perfume to get it through customs. Because of course they just do a scan and it's like, okay, there's this little fancy bottle. Well, it's perfume, it's not alcohol. Oh, okay. Off you go. <laughs> so yeah there, there's definitely shenanigans like labeling things differently because then the people that might be checking these things won't care at that point i thought you're gonna tell me that it actually turns out perfume has a much bigger issue with like import taxes or something and yeah. <laughs> it ended up causing more problems no. nope <laughs> no no it was something that was i mean she basically technically was bootlegging alcohol into the United States from France because she didn't pay any yeah, excise yeah. taxes or anything like that. I mean, she, she bought one little bottle of something for my father, of course. So who the fuck cares? But like, technically she's a bootlegger. <laughs> yeah. It was probably like duties or something. Hey man, mm-hmm. I got a sort oh, yeah. of smuggling career somewhere. Absolutely. <laughs> nice. uh, you, um, you got a quote or anything for us, Brandon? Yeah, of course. The 5th of November today. So, on that route here. Behind this mask, there's more than just flesh. Beneath this mask, there's an idea, and ideas are bulletproof. That's a V for Vendetta quote. Of course, next is out.